And you guys may be seated. And for those of you who have children and you uh, utilize our uh, children's ministry, just by way of reminder, we run that through first grade. For those of you whose kids stay in the service, they are most welcome here. And if they get a little too fussy, and again, just by way of reminder to dads, you're most welcome to just take them out for a second, get them calmed down, bring them back in. And uh, I know that feels maybe disruptive to you, but they're learning the rhythms of worship alongside of you, and it's tough for them to sit through listening to me for uh, as long as they have to. So <clears throat> we've been going through for some time uh, our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, and we're on chapter 10, and, uh, and I just wanted to read paragraph 2 to you. And, and again, this, this, isn't a, this is, we, we see a, the Bible being systematized through the reading of these doctrines, and we're seeing at the same time a, um, a hermeneutic, a way in which the Word of God is being interpreted to us, teaching us how to read the Word of God in a lot of ways. But paragraph 2, chapter 10 is on effectual calling. It says this, This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen, in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. So, encouraging words on how we are called to salvation. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, is where we are. And we started looking at this passage last week. And originally, I had prepared to preach one sermon on this, but <clears throat> it seemed right to spend just a, a a couple of weeks here because there there's some more things that I thought were worthy of uh, you know I, any aspect of God's word really is inexhaustible, isn't it? Uh, and I, I'm struck the the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I spend time reading God's word, I can read something that I uh, have read a thousand times, and then I read it again, and the the Holy Spirit of God uh, helps me to see it and apply it in a new way, and that's one of the beauties of the Word of God, and so. Uh, so, you know, the, even spending two weeks on one passage, that isn't all to see in this passage, um, but it's how many weeks we're going to spend on it. But allow me to read, we're going to start with verse 32, go down to verse 45, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in together. The Word of the Lord says this, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, speaking of the disciples, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, 
we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one at your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for allowing us to spend time in it together as a church family. God, we confess that your word is true and trustworthy. We confess that your word has been preserved, kept pure throughout ages. We confess that, Lord, as we read it, We can hear from you. We confess that your Holy Spirit can use it to change us. And so, God, we read it, we think about it this morning in faith, and we know that that faith is solely a gift from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I told you that if I were to sum up this passage of Scripture and and really just to, to give it one, uh, you know, use this whole passage and, and, um, and summarize it with just one other passage of Scripture or one other verse, it would be Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, right? Which after contemplating the supremacy of Christ over all things, after highlighting this great cloud of witnesses that testify to the supremacy of Christ over all things, uh, we see um, the Apostle Paul say this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for Uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What we see in our passage uh, last week, passage this morning, is the joy of Jesus in doing and accomplishing the will of the Father, right? And his joy in, in bringing glory to the Father, which at the same time, resulted in our salvation, okay? And, and, and so that, that's the, um, the, 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 the main thing that we should see in this passage as Jesus, along with the disciples and particularly the 12, head up to Jerusalem. But there's a few more things for us to see. And again, the reason I wanted us to spend a couple of weeks here, and if you're writing down notes, this is the first thing I'd have you jot down or look in your bulletin, worship God alongside of me. But Jesus is the model of servant leadership that we need. Okay? Jesus is the model of servant leadership that we need. Right? He's our Savior and He's our example 
in our text this morning, right? And you see that in other places, Philippians chapter 2, for instance, when the Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Philippi, uh, Philippi about the humility of Christ Jesus and laying down his life, being obedient to the point of death, right? And, and not only is he, is he showing Jesus to us as our Savior, but he then commends the church of Philippi to walk as Christ walked. But consider the bookends of our text in Mark. Right, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we spent a good amount of time last week talking about Jesus as a, a speed walker, right? His uh, going up to Jerusalem, his setting his face like a, a flint toward Jerusalem where he would suffer, where he would die, and where he would bodily and eternally resurrect, right? In verse 45, what I just read a moment ago, now it shows us the mindset of Christ, right? He was able to do this. He was eager to do this because he understood that his first advent ministry, right, what we, what we see uh, in the Gospels, right, was to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus would not be sidelined um, from this objective, right? He came to serve, and his service was that of laying down his life for his sheep, John chapter 10, verse 11, verse 15. And again, in this, we see Jesus as both our Savior, but we also see him as the model, right? The perfect model for servant leadership. Now, we all need to be servant leaders, right? And I want us all to think through how we should model uh, the servant leader example of Jesus. But in my seeking to apply our text, I want to specifically speak to the men on what servant leadership looks like, especially uh, in our homes. And, and I think that's appropriate because we see the Apostle Paul do the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, and then verses 25 to 29. It says this, right? For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves Himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Right? Headship, which is what this passage is talking about, right? It's, it's a biblical word regardless of how we feel about it, right? It's a biblical word that I think is, has fallen on hard times because A, we don't understand it, B, we're prideful, and C, there have been abuses, right? Uh, but headship, as we see in the example of Christ in his first advent ministry, and as put forward by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, is servant leadership. Right? The problem is we don't even understand what servant leadership is. 
So we need to have our thinking shaped by the Bible. We need to have our thinking shaped by, obviously, the example that we have in Christ for servant leadership. So let me give you two ways that we can take our example from Jesus and we can apply it. And, and this isn't exhaustive, of course, uh, but these are two very fundamental things, okay? And, and, and again, I have in, in view here the, the men that are in attendance this morning. But the first is this. Jesus faced the hard things. He did not avoid them. Okay, Jesus faced the hard things. He did not avoid them. Right? Jesus didn't serve himself by calling off his messianic mission. Right? He, he did the hard things. And here's the deal. <clears throat> Jesus could have called it off. He could have called it off. We see him say as much in Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 through 54, after Peter cuts the servant of the high priest's ear off. And yes, kids, you did hear me say that. Peter cut off a guy's ear. Um, but he cut off a guy's ear that, that was trying to arrest Jesus, right? And we see Jesus say this, verses 52 to 54. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels, which, boys and girls, that means a lot of angels, like 72,000 minimum. All right? But if Jesus did that, the scriptures would have never been fulfilled, and, and we would still be in our sins. Right? Instead, Jesus did the hard thing. Right? As we saw last week, he drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins. Right? He was baptized in judgment so that we might be saved. Men, usually the things that we need to be doing, right? the, the things that we need to invest our blood and sweat and tears in, are the hard things that we're tempted to avoid or give up on altogether. Right? What is it that you're presently avoiding or that you're tempted to avoid? Right? Practically speaking, again, this is probably where you need to invest your time. Right? What is it that genuinely you're tempted to give up on? Right? That's probably the area that, that our enemy, Satan, wants you to give up on. Right? The things that are truly of cosmic importance is where you'll find the most friction and often the most discouragement, right? The, the things that are truly of cosmic importance is where you'll find the most friction and often the most discouragement, right? So be aware of that so that you can dig in and, and, and don't delay obedience on whatever it is that, that, that comes to your mind as I'm speaking this morning. Go home this very afternoon. Consider those areas in your life, in your family, in your vocation right, that you need to address. Again, chances are you probably already know, you know what you need to bring into subjection to Christ. So begin to bring whatever it is into subjection to Him today. Right? Servant leadership does the hard things. Servant leaders do not avoid the hard things, and we see Christ as our ultimate example of this. 
Okay, so that's the, the first thing as we consider the servant leadership of Christ. The second thing is that Jesus served according to what the Father wanted, not what those around him wanted. Jesus served according to what the Father wanted, not what those around him wanted. Think about that for a moment, okay? Jesus' very apostles, his friends, and including Peter, who stood in opposition to Christ and tried to rebuke Christ at one point, right? E- even Christ's very own family, they had opinions, very strong opinions about what Jesus should be doing, about what the Messiah should be doing, right? But what have we noticed in our journey together as Christ's chief concern? His chief concern has been the glorifying of the Father, right? His chief concern has been doing the will of the Father, right? John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40 says, all that the Father gives me, right? Christ speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The ones who come to me, and this is such a sweet promise, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's glorious news. Jesus' focus was to do the will of the Father, which was to save those whom the Father gave him, right? to acquire for them eternal life, to do them good, to do them good. Right? And this was the case no matter what those around him thought. Right? This is what he was committed to no matter what those around him thought. And Jesus charges us, Again, especially men with this type of servant leadership, right? Our service, our leadership should be shaped by God, not man, right? Now, because we're not Jesus, let me dispel any delusion of that for us this morning, but rather we're called to be like Jesus. We need help in being the type of servant leader that is chiefly concerned with doing the will of God. Now, what are the helps that God's given us, right? You hear me mention this kind of stuff all the time here, but in addition to the Holy Spirit of God living in us, right, our helper, our comforter, whom he promised upon his ascension, right, who we have possession of and who possesses us, right, but we also have the opportunity to commune with God through regularly gathering with the church, through the reading of the word, through prayer, through sacrament, right, we have the opportunity to be in fellowship, with other men, right? And we need to avail ourselves of these things because if we don't, and this is critical, if we don't, we will not see clearly. We will not see clearly. And if we don't see clearly, we can't be God-centered men. And if we don't see clearly, we can't be God-centered men. None of us is an island. We have to be humble in seeing our need for God and seeing our need for one another. Now, when those things are in place, we will begin to grow to greater and lesser degrees, different paces, if you will, but we'll begin to grow in how we view uh, servant leadership and how we function as servant leaders. And, And let me say this, husbands, right? Again, assuming these things are in place, servant leadership isn't 
just do whatever you can to make your wife and kids happy. That isn't servant leadership, right? That's not what headship is, right? That's what servant leadership has been relegated to, but it's not biblical servant leadership, right? Servant leadership isn't being a timid yes man, right? That's trying not to make waves or cause too much friction or tiptoe on eggshells, right? If that's how we view servant leadership or that's how we function in the home, then you're not being who God's called you to be. Instead, you're being fearful. You're being fearful, right? Servant leadership isn't being timid in the task that God's called you to do, right? Servant leadership is actually leading according to God's word. It's leading in such a way that it's good for your home, right? There may be times where you get pushback on that. Again, assuming the, 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 you've got the proper riverbanks, but there may be times where you get pushback on that. And listen, it would be sinful to be manipulated in the same way that it would have been sinful for Jesus to be manipulated by well-intentioned disciples or his well-intentioned relatives, right? To shape how he should go about accomplishing what it was that God had called him to accomplish. Right? We should aim to please God alone in our servant leadership, and we do that according to his word. We do that in community with the local church, and we do that ultimately and most importantly dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. We aren't to be domineering. We aren't to be brash. Our leadership is done in such a way that given enough time, it should have a positive, sanctifying impact on those that we're called to lead. Now, Jesus helps us even more with this because he contrasts how the world thinks about leadership. And as I see how he contrasts the way that the world thinks about leadership, I, I couldn't help but think how much the church has been impacted by how the world thinks about leadership. Right? But the world puts forward a, a vision of leadership that isn't redemptive, right? but it's domineering. Look back at verse 43 in our text. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall become your servant. I'll talk about that word in a minute. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave. I'll talk about that word in a minute. Of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a couple of things. At the beginning part of verse 43 would be better translated as, quote, it is not so among you, not it shall not be so among you. In other words, Jesus is saying my kingdom does not and will not function like a pagan kingdom. It will not have a domineering, ego-serving quality to it. It will not insist on its own way. My kingdom, Jesus is saying, does good. Those leaders in my kingdom will lead in such a way that it serves a redemptive purpose. And Jesus highlights this by using two words to bring the nature of servant leadership into high definition for us. The first word is diakonos, which is where we get what word from? Deacon, right? We get the word deacon from it, and it means servant. That's why you, in many of our translations, we see that word servant there, right? The second word that he uses would have been even more jarring to the apostles, and it's the word doulos, which literally means slave, right? Now, this isn't Jesus saying that you're the type of servant or slave that's at the beck and call of the one that you're serving, right? It isn't the type of service where you let others set the agenda of your service. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, he's saying that you're to serve according to real needs. You're to serve according to real needs. And these are needs that you anticipate. These are needs that you perceive because your eyes are fixed on Christ and you're committed to his kingdom, which means that you don't have any silly notions about building your own kingdom, right? So we look to Jesus as our servant leader, right? And we see that he did the hard things, and we see that he didn't get sidelined by the opinions of people around him as it related to accomplishing the will of the Father. Secondly, Pride can often be masked in religious language. We see that in our passage. Think back to the request of James and John in our text. And as I noted last week, they, um, they honored, if you will, Jesus by, of course, assuming he would sit in the place of highest honor, right, which is the center seat. But in all reality, what they wanted to do was solidify their place of honor, One commentator puts it this way. The brothers, speaking of James and John, hoped to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest or worse. Self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. Now, if this type of pride coursed in the veins of Jesus' closest companions, then we shouldn't be deceived to think that it doesn't course through our veins as well, right? And and of all of the different types of pride out there, religious pride seems to be the very worst, right? Religious pride seems to be the very worst, right? This pride can manifest itself in in different ways. One of the ways I've talked about even this morning in in our confession of sin, but it can manifest itself in our thinking that we increase our right standing before God through our own merits, right? It's religious pride, right? It, It can manifest itself, for instance, in the way we look down on others or their stories or even the particular sins that they have committed, Jonathan Edwards, he was keenly aware of that particular type of pride, so much so that at 19 years of age, he wrote this resolution. This is resolution eight. He said, I'm resolved to think of myself as the worst of sinners so that I may act and speak humbly. I will not think I'm out of reach of the sins that I observe in others. Instead, I will act inwardly as if I had committed those very sins, and I will let the knowledge of their sins promote the mortification of my own sins and the confession of my own sins and helpless state to God. Listen, it's a good and proper thing. It's a spiritually mature thing to think of yourself as the chief of sinners. You've heard me say that before, right? The apostle Paul, I think at the height of his spiritual maturity, thought of himself in that way. He thought of himself as the least of the apostles. He thought of himself as the chief of sinners. When we began to look down on other stories and what God has redeemed them from, This is an area of religious pride. It's an area in which we perhaps are trusting too much in our own stories and in our own what we think to be righteousness rather than in Christ. It's also even more sinister underbelly of it all, right? We think that we deserve more than that, the other person that we're judging, that we deserve to be saved and perhaps they didn't deserve it as much as, as us. 
Another way that religious pride manifests itself is through, uh, it shows up in how we learn about God, increase, how we increase our knowledge of God, right? So our, our, our knowledge of God, our growing knowledge of the Word of God can even feed our pride. Right? How often do we belittle those who have a different theological perspective than we do? How often do we use theological terms to shout other people down, to present ourselves as being more educated or more spiritually mature than we really are? Are we quarrelsome about God's Word and about theological positions? Are we unteachable because of the conclusions that we've come to? Right? Do we find ourselves constantly debating or feeling this itch to assert every single opinion that we have about God and His Word? If so, we're serving our pride. We're slaves to our pride. Knowledge without love feeds pride and arrogance. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. If our studying of Scripture, if our studying of theology, and this is critical, if it doesn't lead us into loving God and loving others, then we're doing it wrong. Right? If our study of God, if our studying of Scripture doesn't lead us into a deeper devotion to God and a deeper devotion to others, then we're doing it wrong. If our obsession with knowing things about Christ and His Word doesn't drive us to doxology, to, to worship, then we need to repent of our pride. Right? James and John had a religious vocabulary. They appeared to give honor to Jesus, but in reality, they were seeking to honor themselves. And we have to ask ourselves the hard question in light of that. Is our supposed spiritual maturity, is our knowledge, is our study, is it something that we're using so that we can puff ourselves up? Or is it driving us again to deeper devotion to the triune God? Here's what I've noticed, okay? Godly people, right? The true godly people, they're warm, they're tender, they're patient with other people. They're not rude. They're not asserting of their own preferences or their own positions. They want others to have the place of honor. They don't want to be honored, nor do they think they should have the place of honor. They, they don't want to be recognized. They just want to be close to Christ, and they genuinely want to love and serve others. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Or, you know, and, and one of the ways you can look at that is how, what are your relationships with the people in this church like? Do you avoid them? Do they, from your view, get on your nerves? In all reality, you probably get on their nerves. Uh, are you warm toward them? Are you loving toward them? These are important. The Apostle Paul, who after just reveling in the glory of God and in the pride-crushing nature of the gospel for the first 11 chapters of Romans, which if you're familiar with Romans, it's quite a theological work, isn't it? But Paul, after writing that to the church of, of, of Rome, he sang. He sang. He, he, he worshiped. He says this, chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Right, we sing this at times here at Deer Park Fellowship. It says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's where our theology and our study of God should lead us. And if it doesn't lead us here, our study of God, our study of theology, these religious exercises that we're doing are only serving our pride. The last thing, and I'll close this down, it's just an encouragement for us to follow Jesus even in uncertain and fearful times. Follow Jesus even in uncertain and fearful times. Last week I noted in passing that the disciples followed Jesus though they were fearful. But look back at that, that part of verse 32 there with me. And as they followed, they were afraid. What stands out to so many of us, what stands out to me at first glance here, is the afraid part of this verse. I don't know if that perhaps is the first thing that stands out to you, but the afraid part is what sticks out to me. But what I want us to take note of is that the disciples followed Jesus despite their being afraid. Many of us are in a fearful place. Perhaps we're on some road of uncertainty. Think of how the disciples must have felt walking the unknown road up to Jerusalem. I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark contrasts the fear of the disciples with the confidence and the steadiness of Christ. We see a Savior here who's consistent. We see a Savior here who's brave. We see a Savior here who is strong, and He's also reassuring He's firm to his disciples, but he's reassuring to his disciples. That's why he mentions what's on their minds, what everybody was thinking about as they walked up to Jerusalem, his coming suffering and his coming death. And Christ's example, his reassuring them, his steadiness, his consistency, it's what helped them to follow him, though they were afraid. We know, because we have the completed canon of Scripture, that in the actual moments of Christ's passion, right, he was temporarily deserted by the disciples, but even afterwards, right after Christ resurrects, he regroups them in light of his resurrection, and then he gives them this impossible task, right, to make disciples of all nations, to give them a Trinitarian baptism, and to teach those from every tribe, tongue, and nation to obey the commandments of God, and then he gave them a promise. He reassured them as they went to do that. He promised that he would be with them, Despite opposition, despite hardships, despite their circumstances, right? We see the disciples followed Jesus up to Jerusalem because their eyes were fixed on Jesus and they were amazed. Their eyes were fixed on the Savior who understood sufferings and trials, yet was unwavering in the midst of them. And then they were ultimately obedient to following Jesus after his ascension because they kept their eyes fixed on him and on his promise of being with them forever, forever. Keeping your eyes fixed on Christ, that has a way of anchoring you no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter how afraid you are. When our circumstances or when other people in our lives are being maximized and Christ is being minimized, we flounder every time. We flounder every time. Right? We despair. We lose our joy. We end up doing selfish things. 
But when our perspective on Christ is maximized, in other words, when our gaze is fixed on Christ and when we see him there as our good and unchanging Savior, that perseveres us. That perseveres us. Again, no matter what we're facing. So I want to close just on this note, this encouragement. Fix your eyes on Christ. Right? I think if we tethered all three of the, the points this morning, that would be something good to tether it to. Right? Fix your eyes on Christ. If your marriage is a wreck, fix your eyes on Christ. If you're single and you're lonely, fix your eyes on Christ. If you feel like you're in the crashing ways of depression and despair, fix your eyes on Christ. Right? He pulled Peter out of the waves, and he can pull you out of the waves of your emotions. Wherever you are, whatever your fear, fix your eyes on Jesus. And I promise you, I promise you that he'll see you through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for time in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the power your word has to shape our hearts, shape our way of life. God, help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ the author and finisher of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.